All right, you may be seated. If you are one of our pirate ship kids, you are dismissed. There we go. All right. A lot of kids today. And I um, hope you'll bear with me that after you sing Waymaker, there's really only one way to go is to really have to bring it. So I'm um, just going to have to do that. Well, again, we're glad that you are here with us this morning. Listen, we know that your time is valuable. And so you could have been doing a lot of different things this morning, especially on a cold day like this, uh, whenever it feels nice to just stay in bed. Um, but you're here this morning. We believe that this is valuable. And so thank you for, for joining us this morning. We're starting a brand new series, The Greatest Week in History. And really what we're looking at is this week in the Bible that is recorded in all four of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the last week of Jesus' life. And listen, we probably all know the bookends of this week. Um, we're doing this a, a little bit early uh, in the year, but it starts on a Sunday with what is known as Palm Sunday. And that takes place on a Sunday, and then you've got your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on, until the last day, which is Sunday. And that is uh, the day of the resurrection or Easter Sunday that we celebrate as believers in Jesus. And so many of you, you, you probably know, and hopefully most Christians are familiar with uh, Palm Sunday. Hopefully most Christians are familiar at least with what Good Friday is, which by the way, we are having a Good Friday service right here in this room uh, on Good Friday, April 10th. We hope that you'll join us for that. Um, and then Resurrection Sunday. We know those things, uh, but some of the things that we often miss is what happens in the week, the Monday through the Thursday. Thursday. Uh, we, we don't really know those events so well. And here's why it's important for us to know this, because we see Jesus do some things on this last week that he's never done before. Like we often like to think about Jesus as this really nice person who never does anything, uh, you know, to offend anybody. Or we see Jesus as like this person who's always with the children. Listen, and this last week of his life, Jesus gets really, really angry. Jesus starts throwing things around and inside the temple and really calling people out on some of the things that they had been doing. On this last week of Jesus' life, he, he gives a new commandment that we still practice to this day. This last week of Jesus' life, he is reaching out to the sick and reaching out to the homeless in a way that he had really never uh, done before in, in such a very impactful way, saying things like, like really, I'm going to be crucified in three days, saying things like, I'm going to come back. Just radical things happen in this last week, the greatest week in history. And here's something that I want you to understand, I want you to know, that at this time where we're going to pick up in Scripture, that theoretically, okay, theoretically, Jesus could have still just lived a long, happy life here with his disciples. He could have continued to do miracles. He could have continued to, to be this great teacher. He could have continued to feed people, all those sorts of things. Up until this week, there wasn't so much animosity towards Jesus that they were ready to put him to death. But here in this week, the greatest week in history, Jesus is going to say some things that really make people mad and angry that really make them so angry that they're ready to have him killed. And like I said, theoretically, he could have gone on his way. He could have never entered Jerusalem, and everything would have been peaceful. 
But he doesn't, and we know that Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus enters into Jerusalem because we know that Jesus had to ultimately die. And I want you to understand that at the outset of this this Sunday, working our way towards up, towards Easter, that ultimately what we're going to see is that Jesus is on a quest to become the king. That Jesus is on a quest to become the king. Now, that's what this is all about. He is working up to this. Now, in an earthly sense, in this entire week, Jesus goes from being this, this miracle worker, this great teacher with no place to lay his head, and whenever Sunday hits, he is the king. He's the king. That's what happens in this week. And so this morning, we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 21. If you've got that, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 21. Um, there are several different accounts of all this, this narrative, the greatest week in history. We could have gone with uh, Mark, we could have gone with Luke or John, but we're going to be going with the book of Matthew over the next seven weeks and kind of following through Matthew's account. Uh, Matthew was uh, somebody that was brought to Jesus as a tax collector, a sinner. And so we're going to read his account over the next uh, several weeks. And this morning what we're going to see is we're going to see a group of people who try to use Jesus, they try to use Jesus to get what they want. Have you ever been there before? Try to use God to get what you want. Try to have this relationship with God, this quid pro quo that, hey, you do this for me and I'll do this for you or I'll do this for you and then you do this for me. Kind of enter into that relationship with God. Um, Believe it or not, I've been here. I've been here many times in my life. And I'll never forget several years ago, probably about five or six years ago, whenever Ashley and I were, uh, were getting ready to move down here, I had to take a job that I absolutely hated. Like, I didn't want to be there. I, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go and work for the church. And by the simple fact that I had to go and, and be there every morning at 5.30, like, I hated it. And I grew angry at the Lord because of that. And I was, you know, kind of embarrassed to be that. And the longer that I stayed there, the more angry I got with God. And the longer I had to stay there, the more frustrated I would become in my walk with Christ. And I would just tell him, like, God, you have to get me out of here. You have to get me out. I do not want to be doing this. I I, I would rather be doing uh, ministry. I'd rather go and work for the church. But I knew that at the time, the church that I was working for, they couldn't pay me. And so I, I had to do it. And the longer he kept me there, man, the more angry and the more frustrated I got at God. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe some of you have never been there before at all. Like you don't have that relationship with God. I, I hope you don't. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, we all at times we get frustrated with God and we try to bend Jesus to do what we want him to do. Where we try to bend God to fit into our story, where we try to bend God to, to meet our expectations, to do what we think he ought to do. And maybe you've said this before, God, if you just get me out of this situation, just get me out of this, I'll never do it again. God, this is my last $20. If you come through for me this time, God, I will be at church every single Sunday for the rest of my entire life. I, if God, if you just come through for me just this one time, I'm your best. Like, I'll be there with a smile on. I'll raise my hands during the words. If you could just do this for me this one time. I think if we're honest, we've all been there a time or two where we try to bend God 
to do what we think we need or to bend God to do what we think is best for our lives. And that's exactly what this crowd here is about to do to Jesus. Matthew 21, if you're there, say I'm there. Words should be up on the screen, but if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can see it over there at our Connect table. Matthew 21, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's the the major capital. We know that uh, this is where the temple is. This is a a time of a big feast, a big festival for the week, the Passover festival. Jesus and his disciples, they're drawing near to Jerusalem. Jesus already knows beforehand, hey, this is where I'm going. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm eventually going to die on the cross, but he still enters Jerusalem even though he knows what's happening. And it says he drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I'm sure that the Rolling Stones would appreciate that. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, uh, put on them their cloaks, and they sat on them. Now, if this sounds really strange to you, here's what's happening in this passage. Here's what's going on. A little bit of background information. The people of the Bible, the Jews here, the people in Jerusalem... They had, in the Old Testament, they had a very special relationship with God. Very special relationship. And it was kind of that thing that God said to them, I am your God, you are my people, just serve me. Don't worship any idols. Don't follow any ways or customs of the culture around you. Just follow me and I will lead you to a land of prominence. I will lead you to be a great nation. And so over time in the Old Testament, we see again and again that they break this relationship with God. They worship other gods. They worship these images. They follow this this guy named Bel. They do all sorts of things, kind of abandoning this relationship with God. And so what God allows to the Jews is he allows them at many different times and at many different places to be overtaken by other nations to be overtaken by their enemies, to be overtaken by strangers and foreigners. Here in this time, in this place, what we have here is the the place of Jerusalem, the people, the, the Jews here, they are overtaken by the Romans. And so they live in a place where they may have grown up, they live in a place that might have some history to it, but they live in a place where they're under the Roman rule and under Caesar and under a Roman province. And so no matter how much they hated it, no matter how much they were ready to be outside the rule of the Romans, obviously Rome is the most uh, most powerful nation in the world at the time, and that's where they have to live. That's where they have to live. They're Jewish. They long to have a nation and a country. They they long to be on their own. And because of their rebellion against God, for hundreds of years they're here under the Roman rule. They're right here under the Roman rule, under the Roman province. So they had to follow the Roman laws. They had to live like Roman citizens. They they, they had to basically live in a Roman culture, live around Roman politics. They had to live basically outside of what they wanted to do. And they could uh, could not gain advantage over the Romans. 
And so for hundreds of years, what the Jews would do is they waited and waited and waited. They waited for a king, somebody who would come in and break them from being under the rule of the Romans. They waited and they wanted who's going to be this next person who's going to come in and be our leader and overthrow the Romans, bring in this great military. Who's going to be the guy? And so I'm sure that over uh, many hundreds of years, they waited and they watched who's going to be the person that takes us out of the rule of the Romans. Who's going to make us this prominent nation? Who's going to make the Jews great again? Who's going to give us back our land? And so great leaders would come and they would go and they would look and say, could he be the guy? Could he be the next king? Great teachers would come and go. They would look to that person and say, could he be the guy? Could this be the person? Is that going to be the king to break us outside of the rule of the Romans? Are they going to bring us back to hope? So whenever Jesus comes here on the scene, in this place, this uh, enters into Jerusalem, he enters in on this donkey, and what Jesus is doing is he's saying to them, I am that guy that you've been looking for. I am the person that you've wanted. I am that person. Here I am. I'm answering all of your cries. I'm answering all of your prayers. I am he. And so it says there that he's fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy or a word that was spoken in in the book of Zechariah. You can go back and look at this. uh, The word should be up on the screen. But this is what was said. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, meaning Jerusalem. Be, Be celebratory. Rejoice. Be happy. Because here's what's going to happen. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, you're what? Your king. Your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is riding in on a donkey and he's saying to the people of Jerusalem, Guess what? You've been waiting on a king, and here I am. Here I am. I am that king that you've been waiting for. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Let's see what happens next. He says that most of the crowd, they spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. It says in the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. David was a king in the Old Testament. We believe that Jesus comes down from the line of that king. He has the same blood and the lineage of David. He says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd says, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so what you have here is you have, an, again, this is, a, this is a week of a big festival. This is what we know as the Passover. They had celebrated for hundreds and hundreds of years this week. Now, normally, this city of Jerusalem was probably about 40,000 people, just about the size of Goose Creek, all kind of crammed into this little place called Jerusalem. 40,000 people. But during the festival of Passover, it was probably about six times that many people. Can you imagine if six times what we already have here in Goose Creek, could you imagine if 240,000 some odd people came here? Uh, Can you imagine like trying to get your Publix, trying to get your Lidl's? Like there's no way. We already fight traffic here as it is. But here in Jerusalem, 
At this time, it's kind of estimated that roughly 240,000, uh, kind of close to 250, somewhere. It's a massive crowd here in Jerusalem for this moment in time. And so what they're doing is they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what they're really saying by that, in Hosanna, what they're saying is, save us, save us. Come and save us. Come and save us. They're saying, Hosanna, and they're bowing down, and they've got their cloaks, and they've got the palm branches that are laid there in the street. But they're also saying, Hosanna, come and save us. But they're pointing at Jesus, and they're saying, there he is. He's coming. There is the king. He's coming to save us. Blessed is he who comes. So at this point in time, Jesus is a major celebrity major celebrity. Like if you and I were there on this particular day on the Passover, there's no way that we could have fought the crowds to try and get there to Jesus to like touch him. He is just like swarmed with people. There's people all around him. The whole city is gathered there to see this major event. But you see, there's a problem with all this. There's a major problem with all of this. There's a big misunderstanding with his entry and there's a big misconception about what Jesus has come to do. You see, one of the first misunderstandings is that typically in Roman culture, a leader would come in on a big white horse. He would come in on a big white horse, a major white horse, kind of declaring that the battle has been won. We have victory now. Or this kind of this king or this political figure, he would ride on a horse, kind of showing his high status and showing importance, saying the, bit, the, the battle has been won, the victory is on our side. But that's not what Jesus enters in on, is it? Jesus doesn't enter in on a big white horse. You ever thought about that? Why doesn't Jesus enter in on a big white horse? Jesus enters in on a donkey on an animal that's seen kind of as lowly, on an animal that's kind of seen as, well, you know what they call it. Maybe you've been called that before, I hope not. Maybe you've called somebody that. You know that this is not the brightest animal. This is not uh, one of those animals that, you know, we put on our money or anything like that. This is kind of a dumb animal. Jesus enters in, not on a major white horse, but Jesus enters in on a donkey kind of symbolizing his humility. And symbolizing meekness of character. Symbolizing, yes, that, that I am who you think I am. But he's also showing incredible humility. It's not this major white horse. It's not what they expected. It's not what they anticipated. It's not this person coming in with political power or might. But it's a man entering in on a donkey. One of the lowest forms of animals that we know. And then the second big misconception is, is this, that the crowds think that Jesus is coming to take them or, or to take them from the tyranny of the Romans, that he's coming to be a physical king, that Jesus is literally going to sit in, in a big chair with a literal crown, with a literal scepter, and rule there for the rest of their lives. They think that Jesus is coming to take them back to a place of prominence. And whenever Jesus didn't do this, by the end of the week, they were so mad and they were so angry with him that they were ready to kill him. They became so angry and 
They went along with his death. But here's the reality is that if Jesus sits on an earthly on an earthly uh, chair, and if Jesus sits on an earthly throne and becomes the king like they wanted, then no one could have truly been saved. And Jesus would have never been the true everlasting king. You see, Jesus has a choice walking into Jerusalem. No one's twisting his arm. No one's making him do this. No one's telling him, hey, you have to go into this place. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing because this is what had been ordained long before he even walks through. And so whenever Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, he knows what lies before him. And you see, this is where our story and the story of the Jews intersects with one another. This is where we are just like the Jews in this passage because we all have a way of trying to make Jesus what we want Him to be. We all have our tendencies and our times where we try to make Jesus into who we want Him to be. Maybe some of us this morning, maybe it's just a perspective of Jesus and who He is as a person. Some of us, if we are a tender, softer kind of person, we like to see Jesus as a tender, soft kind of person who just sits around and maybe it's like that old school version, you know, where he's got the purple stash, his hair is like perfectly elegant, he's sitting around with children around him, you know, generally like passing out suckers and stuff. If we're a softer person, we like to see Jesus like that, that Jesus was just full of grace, full of forgiveness. Maybe some of us, you have a perspective of Jesus where you like to see Jesus as this tough, macho individual who never had anything to do with the lowly, you know, Jesus was kind of this masculine dude. We, we like to see Jesus like that sometimes. I think some of us, we might see Jesus as a little too, uh, little too much of a middle-class white man. Like Jesus, did, he was in Jerusalem. He didn't grow up in America. Like some of us, we picture Jesus as just being this champion and patriot uh, for America who's fighting on our behalf. We all have different ways in which we see Jesus, different perspectives in which we see Jesus. And sometimes our ideas about Jesus are wrong. They're completely wrong. And we take this version of Jesus, whatever it is that you've concocted in your mind, whatever version it is that you've heard of him growing up in church, or whatever it is that you've heard about him on the outside, and we take that Jesus and try to make him meet our expectations. God, why didn't you do this for me? Jesus, why weren't you there for me whenever I was going through this? Jesus, I don't even feel like you're answering my prayers. Why aren't you listening to me? Listen, I want you to understand this. Life is not always going to go your way. It's not always going to go your way. It may not look how you've always imagined. But my question for you is, what do you do whenever Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? What if life isn't how you expected it? What if your kids aren't turning out or didn't turn out the way that you wanted them to? What if you didn't get that job that you thought you deserved? Listen, I think that one of the major problems and one of the major things with our generation, my generation, your generation, is that especially millennials, Gen Z, 
that we're filled with anxiety, we're filled with depression, because many of us fear that life was supposed to be so much better than what it is. That we feel like there's something more out there, there's supposed to be something greater out there, and we all feel like we've missed out on it. Are you tracking with me? You understand what I'm saying? Like, there's supposed to be this best life out there, and I'm not living it. What do you do whenever Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? Do you still trust Him? Do you still trust this Jesus? Listen, the crowds thought that Jesus was going to come and be a physical king because that's what they thought they really needed. They thought they needed Jesus to come and be this physical king. And I'm going to tell you this, that Jesus is not always the king we want, but Jesus is always the king we need. He may not be the king you want this morning. He may not be meeting what, you're, what you think he ought to be doing, but I guarantee you this, he's doing exactly for you what you need. What you need, and he has done for us what we truly need need? Has Jesus become some pawn in your story of life? And my second question is this, have you made Jesus the king of your life? Have you made Jesus the king of your life? Have you followed all of his commands? Has his ways captivated your life? Have you surrendered everything to him? Surrender, right? If Jesus is the king, guess what that means? That means you ain't. If Jesus is king and if he's at the highest, then our only response to him is to surrender everything that we've got to him. You see, Jesus makes this long walk and he gets ready for an experience that no one had ever experienced before. Why does he do this? Jesus went through with Palm Sunday so that you could have a relationship with him. So that you might have a relationship with him. You see, Jesus had to die. There was no other way around it. John Birch who's a pastor and theologian, he says it this way. He says, what a strange paradox. He says, the king is coming. The people rejoice, singing Hosanna in the highest. Yet they fail to understand that the king they welcome is the servant king. I love that. The king who washes his disciples' feet. The king who came not with an army, but with a weapon so powerful that not even death could resist. The sacrificial love of God laid out upon a cross. You see, the biggest misunderstanding, the biggest misconception with Jesus being here on Palm Sunday is no, He didn't come as this great political leader looking for political gain, looking for political power. That's not how Jesus came. Jesus came here as one motivated by love. You understand that, right? That Jesus came motivated by love, sure, by obedience to, to bend to the Father's will, to do what God wanted him to do. But what Jesus is doing here, he's not moving through the crowds. He's not entering into a place so that he can be an, uh, an earthly king, so that he can be this great political figure. No, Jesus is entering in, and ultimately he's going to be a spiritual king so that you could have a relationship with him. Jesus goes for, with all the power so that you might follow him and so that you might love him and know him for the rest of your life. That's what Jesus does. 
here in this moment. This is the great paradox on all of Palm Sunday. Now, as we move into the rest of this week and as we move into this sermon series, my, my question for you is simple. Have you made Jesus like king of your life? Not just one with like this, this mental ascent, like, you know, we understand that Jesus came to die. We understand that Jesus uh, is the only way that we can have uh, a way into heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But have you made Jesus king a Monday through Friday, every minute of your life, where you have to surrender everything to him? Because if you haven't, and if you haven't made Jesus king, then we're just like the Jews here. Where Jesus is just some man who helps us get what we need out of life. Who helps us become something that we expect out of life. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, our, um, our hearts are burdened and our hearts are overwhelmed because, Lord, you're none of those things I think that we've made you out to be. I'm guilty in my own life, God, of seeing you as somebody who is supposed to help me be somebody. And I think that one of the greatest dangers for our generation today, one of the greatest dangers for the church today, God, is that we would simply rather use you to get to a point and place where we feel happy with ourselves rather than finding true joy and meaning from a relationship with you. Lord, I'm guilty of it. Lord, I, I hope and pray that as a church, we're not guilty of this. That you are a person to come and find fulfillment in, that you are a person that we come and find joy in, that you are a person that we come and find everlasting life in, that you are a person that we come and find peace in. The king who came to die, Lord, how dare we use you as some puppet for our own personal lives. Jesus, help us when we're guilty here. Forgive us of this. Change us and allow us to no longer treat you this way. Allow us to put you on the throne of our own lives and in our own hearts. Going where you say go, doing what you say do, speaking what you say speak. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have never made Jesus king and you have kind of followed this pattern of thought, pattern, followed this idea. Um, this morning, we just want to give you kind of room to, to wrestle with that, to think through that. If you would like somebody to pray with, I'll be at the back of the room. We can pray through that, whatever that looks like for you. We just pray this morning that you would be obedient in being changed.